0: Quote, Meanwhile, Numenor has grown in wealth, wisdom, and glory, under its line of great kings of long life, directly descended from Elros, Erendil's son, brother of Elrond. Welcome back, Middle-Earth Wanderers. Today in the Lore of the Rings podcast, we will finish our five-part series of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Waldman Letter, penned in 1951 and now published as a preface to the Silmarillion. Today we will explore the tale of Numenor, the island kingdom of men rewarded to them in the second age of Middle-earth. We will see firsthand the themes of the fall, mortality, and the machine, leading to a desire for power, as we explored from Tolkien in a previous episode. Just a reminder before we get started, if you really enjoy this show and this content, please leave a five-star review every time you do. Leave a rating or review. It helps more Middle-earth wanderers to find the show. Also, Frodo had Sam, Merry and Pippin had each other, and Aragorn had Legolas and Gimli. In other words, wandering Middle-earth is not something you want to do alone. So find someone you can share this episode with, tap that share button, and go ahead and wander Middle-earth together. And subscribe if you haven't already, that way you won't miss out on any new episodes. Now, let's wander. So we've been exploring the Waldman letter that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in 1951, to Waldman, who was a publisher in London. Uh, This was in between the publishing of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien gave a brief sketch of his imaginary world. Honestly, I'm a little surprised that we've spent five episodes on this. When I was planning this out, I think I planned originally maybe two episodes on this. But as we started digging in deeper and deeper, I just thought, well, we need it. We need to take this thing a little bit slower. So I'm glad that we've done five episodes. Maybe you're not. I don't know. But I certainly am. I've, I've loved Wandering Middle-Earth with you in, in, the, in the Waldman letter. The tale of Numenor in the Second Age is a direct manifestation of the themes that we explored in a previous episode that Tolkien mentioned earlier in the letter, the themes of the Fall, Mortality, and the Machine. Numenor is an island kingdom set in the midst of the ocean. At the very furthest west, they can see the Blessed Realm or actually the land called Eressaea, which is right outside the Blessed Realm of Valinor. They could sail north or south or to the east, to Middle-earth, but there was a ban placed upon them from sailing so far west that they could no longer see their island. This ban was placed there because, while the Numenorians were gifted with long life, sometimes three or four times the natural span of life for men, they were not given the gift of immortality. And so they were banned from sailing into the west to the undying lands, and thus setting their mortal feet upon the immortal lands, and desiring in their hearts to to dwell there and to live there, which was against their natures. So you can begin to see here that the mortality theme that Tolkien outlined earlier is starting to make its play here in Numenor. In fact, they were rewarded, not just with the island kingdom, but with this long life. But this reward became their undoing. Reward on earth is more dangerous for men than punishment. Their reward is their undoing or the means of their temptation. Their long life aids their achievements in art and wisdom, but breeds a possessive attitude to these things and desires awake for more time for their enjoyment. So the desire to overcome mortality is going to be the chief motivation that leads to the fall of men or as we as Tolkien says the second fall of men and the literal fall or descent of Numenor into the depths of the ocean. Sorry spoiler alert there. Tolkien outlines three phases for men's fall from grace. The first phase is a willing obedience to follow the ban and to live in Numenor. The second phase is an unwilling obedience where they begin to murmur and complain about the ban and their gift of mortality. And the third phase is finally outright rebellion. However, not everyone rebels against the Valar and their ban. There is a small group of faithful who would like to keep a friendship with the elves and to continue to follow the commands of the Valar and their ban. However, they are not wholly immune to the desires for a longer life but they still are faithful to the valar and to the elves. So in phase 1, the willing obedience phase, these men of Numenor, they are descendants of Eärendil. Eärendil if you remember was the father of Elrond and Elros. He was a great seafaring mariner and he was able with the light of the Silmaril to find a way to Valinor and convince the valar to help overcome Morgoth in the first age of Middle-earth. So His lasting achievement is that he now flies a Silmaril through the night sky as the morning and the evening star. And so his descendants, these men of Numenor, became great seafarers, and they did. They sailed all over. They sailed north, they sailed south, they sailed east, they explored all over. They would go to Middle-earth, and they were almost like, as Tolkien says, divine benefactors, bringing gifts of art and knowledge and passing away again. Uh, And that was sort of their, their... they enjoyed. It was a bit, it was peaceful and it was blissful and that was paradise for them for a few hundred years in Numenor. However, the second stage of their fall from grace began. This was the unwilling obedience to follow that ban and starting to murmur and complain against the natural, their natural doom, which was mortality. The second stage Tolkien calls, quote, the days of pride and glory and grudging of the ban. In this particular phase, they sought more to grow their own wealth and, and power in Middle Earth, rather than to just pursue bliss and paradise. They now started to create settlements on the western edges of Middle Earth. These settlements, they turned into strongholds, and they became, as Tolkien says, factories for the forging of their arms and their engines. So we're get, beginning to see the theme of the machine, or... You know, leading to power, the desire to make the will more effective. And the Numenorians became tax gather- gatherers. They started to um, collect taxes and wealth from the, the less informed, the less sophisticated men of Middle Earth and take that back to the island kingdom of Numenor. The third phase begins uh, with the last king of Numenor. Now, we know from the Silmarillion, Tolkien revised this king's name to Arfarazon. He's one of the characters in the Rings of Power TV show. But in the Waldman letter, Tolkien actually names this king Tar-Kallion the Golden. Uh, So those those names will change a little bit. Remember, this is quite a few years before the publishing of The Lord of the Rings. And so Tolkien had a lot more editing and publishing to do. But uh, this last king of Numenor, he learns that Sauron, who, if you remember from our last episode, Sauron had fought the battle with the elves. He had tricked them into creating the rings. Now he had claimed a few of them and yet lost a, a, a war. And so he was back in Mordor, kind of rebuilding his strength. But when this last king of Numenor learns that Sauron has taken upon him the, the title of king of kings and lord of the world, then this last king of Numenor, quote, resolved to put down the pretender, the pretender being Sauron. Which is rather ironic, seeing as how Sauron actually is an immortal creature, being one of the Maiar, the archangels who serve the Valar. And this king of Numenor is actually a mortal so you have some irony there that the mortal thinks that he's going to turn down the pretender. But it also goes to show just how powerful and wealthy and mighty the Numenorians had become in creating their, their empire there from their island stronghold. So they create a great armada, this last king of Numenor. He goes and he sails to Middle-earth. Um, and so vast is his armament, and the Numenorians are so great and so terrible that Sauron's servants say, Sauron, you're on your own. We're not going to fight them. Saren humbles himself, and he comes back to Numenor as a hostage or prisoner, which is really to his liking, um, because it's not very soon after he comes to Numenor as a servant that he starts to whisper certain lies and deceptions among the Numenorians and their king. He becomes one of the chief counselors for the king, and he specifically says, quote, The ban is only a lying device of fear to restrain the kings of men. Sauron is able to gain enough power over the Numenorians that he can organize them into a new religion and a worship of the dark. He tells them that the Valar and, um, have lied and said that Iluvatar is not actually real, but the real god is the god of darkness, aka Morgoth, who stands out there in, in the void. Necromancy starts to happen in Middle-earth as some of these Numenorians come back to Middle-earth with the dark magic and power that, that Sauron is teaching them. And human sacrifice begins to occur, which is, uh, that's a big no-no. We don't want to do that. But there is a small group of faithful who do remain faithful to the elves. They establish settlements in Middle-earth, their chief settlement being near the great river Anduin. This is the river that, that the fellowship took boats on in, in, after leaving Lothlorien. And Minas Tirith sits near the mouths of this, uh, of this particular river. But finally Sauron is able to convince the last king of Numenor who is getting old in age and he knows that death is approaching. He's able to convince this king that if he were just to take his whole army and his navy and sail to Valinor he could claim the undying lands and thus win immortality for himself. So this is what the Numen- Numenorians do. They They spend several years. They create this very vast armada. They put all of their all of their men and their army into this vast armada and they sail into the west they break the ban that the valar had placed upon them and the valar at this time um really don't know what to do quote the valar laid down their delicate power and appealed to god and received the power and permission to deal with this situation the old world is broken and changed so the result of this numenorean attack on the undying lands and the valar is a complete changing of the world we'll explore more of that right after this break we're not done yet if you like this episode please leave a review and share with your friends and remember to subscribe if you haven't already we'll be right back you can be the hero of your own marvel comics adventure marvel strike force is an extraordinary mobile game a haven for comic book enthusiasts and gamers alike. Lead your own fellowship of heroes and villains to battle against the forces of darkness that threaten the very fabric of the universe. From the menacing Doctor Doom to the formidable apocalypse, every battle is a chance to prove your mettle. And right now, Marvel Strike Force is commemorating its six-year anniversary, That means free rewards await those who heed the call and sign up today. With weekly events and bonuses, this anniversary celebration promises a treasure trove of special rewards. Rally your allies, sharpen your blades, and dive into the action of Marvel Strike Force today. Use code MAXPOOL to unlock free new treasures. That's code MAXPOOL, all one word, on the mobile game Marvel Strike Force. Now... Back to Wandering. In response to the attack on Valinor, the god Iluvatar and the Valar actually reshape the whole world. Valinor is removed from the world. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know if they're like taken up into heaven maybe. don't know how that looks like. But the straight road to find them or to sail to Valinor is actually removed from the world. Only elves can find that way now. And the world is now in a spherical form, so that if men were to sail into the west, they would arrive back in the east. So it's just one big circle now, uh, and the whole world has changed. And even more so, a great rift opens up in the ocean, and the entire island of Númenor is sunk into the depths. Uh, The whole armada from Númenor sinks, and and nothing from Númenor remains except there is a small group of ships led by the faithful that do escape from Numenor and its drowning and are carried by a great wave as this chasm closes back up. These faithful are led by Elendil the Fair, which Tolkien also notes, quote, his name means elf friend. Elendil, Elendil has two sons, Isildur and Anarion. Lindil is sort of a Noah-like figure from the Old Testament in the Bible, in that he rises back up from the flood and the wave, he arrives in Middle-earth, and he and his sons establish two kingdoms. They establish Arnor, the kingdom in the north, and also uh, Gondor, the kingdom in the south. Sauron is an immortal creature, but even so, hardly escapes the ruin of Númenor and returns to Mordor where after a while he is strong enough to challenge the exiles of Númenor. So Elendil and his sons in Arnor and Gondor, they're starting to establish settlements there. Obviously they have not returned to Númenor, that's been sunk into the depths, so now they, they have to create and establish lives there in Middle-earth. Uh, Sauron is gaining power and strength, and the Second Age comes to a close with what, is, what Tolkien called the Last Alliance of Elves and Men. This is the Great Siege of Mordor. This siege ends with the overthrow of Sauron, but there is a cost and a mistake. As Tolkien says, the cost is this, quote, Gilgalad, the king of the elves, and Elindil, the faithful, are slain in the act of slaying Sauron. So this is an interesting note here. This is a little bit different than how it's portrayed in Peter Jackson's movie. You sort of see that Isildur takes up, you know, his father's sword after it's been broken, and he cuts the ring off Sauron, and Sauron sort of implodes. But an actual little detail here is that gil Gil-Glad, the elf and Elendil the man, they actually slay Sauron, they defeat him, but they are slayed in the process. The battle takes them out as well. So after the battle, Isildur, uh Elendil's son, he goes to Sauron's body and he cuts the ring from his hand as a guild. This he takes as a trophy and as payment for his father's death from Sauron, uh, and he claims the ring as his own. Which is the fatal mistake at the end of the Second Age. However, uh, Sauron's plan is actually work and emotion. If you remember, we spoke last time that Sauron believed that if the ring ever left his finger in some unimaginable way, that if it was found by anyone, that they would so lust for its power that they would not want to destroy it. So thus far, that assumption seems to be working. As Isildur, quote, refuses to cast the ring into the fire. Nearby. Now we don't actually get a scene with Elrond and Isildur up there in in Mount Doom saying, "Throw it into the fire." And Isildur gets you know his one line from the from the movies. No, we don't actually get that. It just says that Isildur refuses to cast the ring into the fire. However, Isildur is drowned in the great river. The ring is lost, but not unmade. So the Second Age ends, and the Dúnedain passes away into the depths. Also, the last High King of the Elves. Gilgalad has died, and that's the end of the Waldman letter. Uh, It sort of ends rather abruptly right there. There's no kind of sort of conclusion, there's no sign off, at at least as far as I can tell. Now, I have heard that in the revised edition of the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, that there's a little bit more to this letter that's not necessarily published here as the preface in the Silmarillion. Now, I have not yet read that or explored that yet, so if there's more, if there's some sort of concluding paragraph, we'll have to explore that in a future episode as we bid farewell to this journey through J.R.R. Tolkien's profound thoughts in the Waldman letter we find ourselves enveloped in the timeless tapestry of his legendarium through 5 episodes we've delved into mo- through, du- through 5 episodes we've delved into Tolkien's motivations explored the poignant themes of the fall mortality and the machine and their seductive grasp on power from the war of the silmarils to the creation of the rings and the tale of númenor Each narrative strand wove seamlessly into a rich fabric of wisdom and truth. Tolkien's words, penned in 1951, echo with a resonance that transcends time. As we conclude our exploration, let us carry forth the uplifting and positive spirit that Tolkien gifted us. For in the face of darkness, his legendarium stands as a testament to the enduring power of hope, the strength of friendship, and the triumph of light over shadow. May we, like the characters in his tales, find solace in the beauty of creation, the resilience of the human spirit, and the promise of a brighter tomorrow. May we embrace the journey with courage and continue to discover the untold wonders that lie ahead. And may the wisdom of Tolkien's Legendarium illuminate our paths as we step into the next chapter of our adventures. Speaking of which, the next episode will feature an episode I had with a Tolkien academic, and you won't want to miss it. Thank you for wandering Middle-earth with me today. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at More of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost.